Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Today for Spirit in Action, we'll welcome a sociology professor from one of the universities in my area about environmental issues. And I want you to keep in mind, wherever you're listening to this, that there is likely someone in your area, perhaps an expert or researcher, maybe an activist or a writer or a leader of some sort, who would enrich Northern Spirit Radio listeners with their stories, experience, or input. So if you know of someone, please contact me, Mark Helpsmeet, and you can find the contact details on northernspiritradio.org. But today's guest, Niels Paulson, is in the social science department of the University of Wisconsin-Stout. And I have him here because his work, in general, addresses global civil society and the environment. And we need all of the resources at hand to deal with the numerous environmental issues of our day. I heard him speaking locally about creating sustainable communities and figured we could all benefit from such insights. So Nels Paulson joins us now by phone from Menominee, Wisconsin. Nels, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. It was good to catch your talk at UW-Eau Claire. Again, the topic was old ideas, new knowledge, sustainable communities. Which of those are you most interested in, the old ideas, the new knowledge, or the sustainable communities? Well, I, I, my hope is that for everybody, the thing we're most interested in is sustainable communities. Old ideas are valuable, and certainly new knowledge is valuable, but only insofar as it actually makes life better, right? Improves quality of life, and we can maintain our finite resources sustainably, right? So I guess the, the last the first should be last, last should be first, right? Okay. Boy, you're getting religious on me already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're in the social science department at the University of Wisconsin in Stout. Where does your interest in sustainable communities come from? Is that something you started into college or into your master's PhD with a particular interest in it, or is that an outgrowth of something else? You know, it kind of came into it backwards. I was always big into the outdoors growing up, really into fishing, hunting, camping, and all of that. And when I was in college, I ended up majoring in history. And I uh, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with that. I wanted to do what I could to make the world a better place in some way. So what I did is I took a job in Phoenix, Arizona, teaching junior high for an inner city school because that was someplace I wouldn't, didn't know anybody and thought I could make an impact. I started working at fly fishing shops on the weekends and try to spend as much time out in nature as possible and realized that my passion is not just for people but for nature and ended up one of uh, my friends that I ran track with as an undergraduate. She uh, started a doctoral program that focused on environmental sociology at Arizona State and I was down there living and hung out with her a few times and met some really cool graduate students and professors and especially this, this cool old Marxist professor, Bob Bowen, started talking to him about environmental sociology and what it was. 
and realized that sociology is, is the best way for me to combine both my interests in the natural world and, and the social. So I, I actually had never had a sociology course as an undergraduate. <laughs> Luckily, they didn't take a look at my transcripts <laughs> or something like that. I just focused on my GRE scores and whatever else. So I ended up getting funding for this doctoral program at Arizona State. Yeah, it's just kind of funny how you can't really predict what direction you're going to go in life sometimes. I end up discovering I love sociology because it answers a lot of the questions about why is our natural world not necessarily sustainably being used and related to. You have to understand how we structure society first. Realize that through teaching and research, I would have my own unique form of advocacy that could be more effective than other avenues I could think of at the very least. And so, uh, yeah, I, I researched quite a few different topics under this general genre of environment and society, ranging from disaster relief to hunting, trophy hunting, to now just in Menominee, Wisconsin, since I moved here, took on studying phosphorus pollution and, and blue-green algae bloom and water quality. Not necessarily because that was the number one thing I was interested in when I went into graduate school, but it seemed like the most pertinent social environmental problem here locally. And so that's my story of how I ended up edging into this. It wasn't something preconceived from the start. Well, I want to take each of those topics and talk a bit about them because overall, again, you said you, you went in sociology, you want to effectuate change, you want to help clean up and you have to understand how the world works, how people work, how our interactions work in order to make change. The first topic that I want to talk about, your research title was something about NGOs, hunting, and conservation. Yep. And frequently, I would say that a lot of people of a liberal ilk will oppose the two. If you're a hunter, you're opposed to conservation, which is a very much a false dichotomy. Talk about your experience about that and what your research was about. Yes. What struck me about hunting is, as a conservation tool, it's, it's one of the most important resources for conservation funding, certainly in the United States, but globally as well. And uh, that it was a really, until we got the Pittman-Robertson Act in the United States, where it earmarks all sorts of, all the hunting funds that the taxes go towards conservation purposes. And, you know, globally, the narrative goes that if we put values on these animals to be hunted, then there'll be incentive for local people to protect the natural habitat in order to make sure that these animals survive in order to bring income into their communities, right? And so the idea behind trophy hunting as a conservation tool, I think, is really wonderful. But what I sort of discovered is that in practice, a lot of the money that's supposed to filter down to local communities to incentivize them to protect the natural habitat isn't actually filtering down to them, right? So, so the question is, for me, this is low-hanging fruit. This is a really great way to not only improve natural habitats, but to improve the lives of impoverished communities globally, is to try to make sure that this trophy hunting conservation tool is working properly and to try to explore why it isn't. And so what I did is I, I, I researched the non-governmental organizations who seem most connected to trophy hunting potentially as a conservation strategy and tried to figure out why aren't we doing more, I guess. So I studied Safari Club International, World Wildlife Fund, IUCN, International Union for Conservation of Nature, and Conservation International. Interviewed a lot of people, spent a lot of time at their headquarters or at the World Conservation Congress or different places like that. 
You know, basically what, what we have going on is sort of what you were talking about, this division in terms of values that is a result of the ways in which we've reconceived civil advocacy. So historically, and as I talked about in my TED Talk, the best way to try and make a vibrant democracy that's sustainable and, and promote social justice is that people spend their leisure time civilly talking with one another and relating with one another. And what's happened as a result of, you know, it's part of a, the modern condition. Over time, the idea of what it means to be participating in civil society has come to mean formal, organized NGOs, right? And so these organizations end up falling into this trap of trying to fit into a particular mission that reflects their donors and reflects certain norms of, of how they're supposed to operate that end up making it really hard for them to work well with people of divergent values. And so you have organizations like Humane Society who don't recognize, for the most part, trophy hunting is a valuable tool at all. It, it, it's like, uh, I remember I was talking with this one guy, he's, uh, he related it to Vietnam. It's uh, like uh, a lot of the, the animal rights crowd, they see it as a narrative of we got to kill these dudes to save them. <laughs> There's this part of that environmental civil society that's completely opposed to trophy hunting and unwilling to communicate with those who are promoting this as a tool like Safari Club International. And then on the opposite side, Safari Club International thinks that, you know, all these environmentalists are idiots, so why don't we even try? So this is the lowest hanging fruit in the conservation world globally, trophy hunting, to try to make it work the way it's supposed to, and we're not actually making a, a really good attempt at, at doing so. So I guess that's basically what my dissertation was about. Actually, one of the impressions that I have is oftentimes hunters and fishers really like being in the outdoors, and they're really concerned if you destroy the outdoors. So there are a lot of people, I, as a matter of fact, one of the people active in our city government here in Eau Claire, he moved up to Eau Claire because he loves the outdoors. That's why he moved here. And then he's involved in development of the city. That's how he works. And so in some ways, he's developing, helping the city grow in a way that is counter to what he actually came here for. It's a fine line to walk sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Internationally, what areas were you checking out about this trophy hunting? Of course, in the news just a couple months ago, there was the big news about the lion that was shot. The uh, lion, yeah. Yeah, by the Minnesota dentist, I believe. Yeah, and no, it, it, was, it was really interesting, the narrative that grew out of that. It, it wasn't surprising at all from my research that you, know, you had people that were stepping in and saying, you know, what a tragedy this guy you know, just kills this innocent lion. And essentially, there's, here's this dentist who's engaged in this hyper-masculinity trying to show off his prestige through <laughs> killing some sort of seemingly exotic animal that's dangerous and he can overcome it and all this kind of stuff. It, it, they're not wrong, right? That is really problematic, the, the sort of idea perhaps behind this dentist going after Cecil the lion and killing him. But on the other hand, then you have the other group of people who are saying, listen, this was a problem in this particular case, but trophy hunting is like your closest to nature you're ever going to get, and this, just, you know, don't let the one bad apple ruin the whole batch raid, which I definitely could have predicted that uh, many of the conversations that we're having 
uh, were being had, at least uh, among my friends on Facebook. And I'm kind of in, in one of those lands where uh, half my friends are very, very conservative, half my friends are very liberal. And so on one hand, I was seeing these conversations that were among the same types of people, like, oh, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world, what a jerk. And on the other hand, the whole other group of people are saying, these idiots don't even understand that while this is a bad particular case, trophy hunting is so wonderful. And, you know, it's one of the more interesting things that isn't explored enough in environmental sociology. A lot of times the focus is on, you know, environmental justice in terms of pollution and, and, or climate change because these are really serious things. But, you know, I've kind of thought that this trophy hunting thing is, is interesting in, in similar yet different ways as well. This is not a case of trophy hunting that I'm going to bring up, but I think it relates directly to the kind of conservation that maybe the trophy hunting can actually support. I've been to Kenya, visiting Quakers over there, and so my wife and I arranged to go on a safari. Most people think that's hunting, but in fact, you know, we're just driving out. We're in a van, and we go amongst these hundreds, thousands of animals. And we spent about an hour at one point observing and at one point getting very close to watching a face-off between a cove buffalo and a lion. And they ended up wandering away and around and eventually the cove buffalo, which had been partially wounded, got away. And the lion disappeared and our driver was trying to find where he went and we come around a corner And from my nose to the nose of that lion was less than eight feet when we came around. He was sitting right behind a tree. Wow. (laughs) It was pretty impressive. It was powerful and moving. But what they did there in Kenya, and they've done some places in Rwanda, for instance, and a number of other countries, they've established reserves where large numbers of animals happen. In the United States, I think it's much harder to get consensus to make such large areas, although I think they're doing it with some bison and other things. Could you talk about what supports that kind of conservation? I think in Kenya, it's one of their biggest sources of income with all of the people who come to go on these safaris like what I went on. Yep. Yeah, no, and, and, and Kenya is a unique case in sub-Saharan Africa in that it's the uh, country that limits the trophy hunting the most. Yeah, I mean, the the net gain of focusing on photography safari versus the traditional safari, perhaps, of actually trophy hunting, I don't know enough about. My general impression in talking to people is that Kenya is not generally celebrated in the conservation world as being a better solution to uh, animals and animal habitat than encouraging more trophy hunting. You don't actually necessarily see the improvement of habitat and species in Kenya comparatively to other places, but I don't know enough about Kenya to be able to speak at length about that particular country, so that's my general impression on that. Are there other countries where you could speak more knowledgeably about what they do? You know, so my field work, I decided to focus on the NGOs themselves instead of individual countries. So my knowledge about individual countries working or not working well is based off of other people's studies. So Namibia and, and Botswana are often celebrated as success stories. A large part of that is, so the, the big idea is to have community-supported conservation initiatives regarding trophy hunting. In other words, where the communities run the show and they have some sort of democratically established group of people who are working with ecologists and and other experts to try to make sure that the system is not only best for nature but for their own communities. 
the places where this has been more successful, of course, are where you have less issues of corruption as well as more active attempts to maintain the community as the basis and, and have a stakeholder group that's really representative of the community driving the show. And so places like Botswana, which are, are relatively stable and low on corruption, of course, are going to be where they're going to be most successful. But beyond that, there's this interesting program that World Wildlife Fund does, which doesn't promote that much in terms of uh, its advertising because there's so many donors to the World Wildlife Fund that don't like hunting, but they have this life program in Namibia that really tries to make sure that the stakeholder groups who are in charge of the hunting are local and that it's not just some outfitter from somewhere around the world who's making a bunch of money and doesn't really care about the local people who's determining the conditions of the, the trophy hunting endeavors. And I think at both conditions, you know, a stable, democratic, pluralistic kind of democracy coupled with a participatory, community-driven approach to the trophy hunting is where it's going to be most successful. We just don't see certainly the former as prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa because of all sorts of extractive, exploitative kind of issues, of course, of the tradition of colonialism and, and so on. But that really needs to be one of the things that needs to be developed first and foremost rather than just better science about how do you manage these habitats. It is really interesting for me, the difference in attitudes, the us versus them attitudes that come, uh, some people who are conservationists who think that any kind of a hunter is not a conservationist. I happen to have in my own family a couple of stepsons who are hunters, one who works for the Department of Natural Resources, as does his wife. So they're very avid outdoors people, including hunting and fishing. And they're very environmentally tuned. So they end up feeling themselves caught in society. Now, you talk about a breakdown of society where we slice society differently. We talk about organizations as the placeholders for contact. How do we get to a better place where we actually meet and respect each other? I see this, by the way, in the campaign. Uh, there were questions that went to Bernie Sanders, his presidential Democratic campaign. He isn't sufficiently anti-NRA for a lot of liberals because his home state, people do believe in having guns, but they don't use them to kill people. They are typically used for hunting, I think. Sure. I think that uh, these, these kind of litmus tests of, of being a true conservative or true liberal are pretty dangerous. I, I think that trying to uh, fit into that type of identity is sort of a central problem. I think a better identity is to try to see yourself as an empathetic listener first and foremost, and, and this can go a long ways in terms of moving us beyond that, I don't know, disconnected uh, and almost haughty kind of existence, right? Where So if you're worried too much about your own status in this world and, and whether you're right or not, and this is where we get into a lot of problems, you know, the, a lot of trophy hunters actually are unwilling to admit or even think about any of their views sometimes, is, and this isn't all of them, of course, but a lot of them, some of their views on, on different things like gender and poverty and even nature as being wrong. And so even though I think that there's a huge problem in our perception of these groups of people being anti-environment because they're hunters at the same time, part of the problem is that when you interact with some of them, they seem like the type of people who wouldn't be doing things that were actually for the betterment of the environment. You know, they're focused on domination, and, and we know that the ideologies of domination have, have been really, really terrible for our environment historically, right? 
So, you know, I, I kind of get why people are suspicious about hunters, but at the same time, I think that the suspicion is coming from the same sort of problematic space as perhaps uh, hunters have in, in terms of trying to think about ways to win argument or to be correct or be better rather than being listeners and empathetic human beings first. And so I guess that it doesn't solve all of our problems to focus on being good listeners, but it's a necessary condition to start, right? Yeah, it is a very good place to start. And at a certain point, that means that communication can happen Common values can be discovered and change can happen, which is, of course, why I have you here. Folks, by the way, I'm speaking with Nels Paulson. He is in the Social Science Department at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. He's in his seventh year there, originally from central Minnesota, did a lot of his study down in Arizona and has been back here. In particular, I heard him speaking at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire to a sociology class and people from the public were invited in for a talk. He had old ideas, new knowledge, and sustainable communities. And there's also going to be very shortly a TED talk, a 10 minute TED talk, and it'll be up on the TEDx uwstout.com website. He's here on Spirit in Action because of his talk and because he's actually teaching us through his research, sociological research, how we can actually effectively make change. Sometimes it's not enough to be right. It's also necessary to be wise. And hopefully this research is moving us in that direction. And before I get into a couple more topics that you've dealt with, Nels, I want to remind our listeners that this program is a Northern Spirit Radio production. It's on the web at northernspiritradio.org. So you'll find connections to Nels Paulson through that website, including to uwstout.edu slash lakes website, which will have a lot of the information that we're going to talk about just shortly. On that site, you can also find a place to post comments. And we love two-way communication. It's part of this listening that we need to do to one another. You're hearing us right now, and we'd love to hear you. So please post a comment when you visit nordenspiritradio.org. Also on that site, you can donate, and that is how this work is funded. It's full-time work, and we need your support to keep giving us an alternative. Even more important in terms of providing an alternative news source for the United States on our airwaves, Support your local community radio station. Community radio provides a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else on the airwaves. And it is so, so, so important. I can't repeat that enough. Start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Nels Paulson is here, UW-Stout, Social Science Department. And we're talking about the material, various research that he's done, and will kind of culminate, I think, in the Lakes Project, which is perhaps the, the crowning up-to-date achievement of his work. But let's talk about civil society and other environmental issues. In particular, I, I was taken by this other research that you did because it involves religion and because spirit in action, we try and look at what are those deeper motivations, sometimes called spiritual, sometimes just called values, but they have to do with our conception of the world and how we unite together to live out that conception. So could you talk a little bit about the research that you did comparing the United States and India? Yeah, sure. So um, for me, I became interested in civil society largely because I, I saw it as the avenue for really addressing not only environmental problems, but our social justice kind of problems. 
in general. But to me, one of the linchpins of civil society is our spirituality and our institutionalized religious organizations. It seems to me, from what I've seen in terms of research and just kind of my own life experiences, that on one hand, religious groups and spirituality in general is a source for all sorts of social justice and, and a way for providing a, both a moral and ethical basis for building a better quality of life. But at the same time, it very often does the exact opposite. And so I think that the way in which religion as a part of civil society is engaged can be really, really fascinating. So after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, or actually during it, I thought it would be really interesting to take a look at the role of religion in dealing with and interpreting that disaster. I took that on as, as a research project that was sort of a side project. I just wanted to explore how religion was discussed in the media. I was talking with another graduate student who was from India. He, he mentioned, well, there were floods in Mumbai at the exact same time as Katrina. And, you know, this was several months after Katrina. And just as many people died. Maybe you should take a look at that, too. And so it turned into kind of an interesting project where I compared how disaster relief was framed in religious terms in both countries. And the thing that was fascinating to me is the difference qualitatively and quantitatively in terms of how disaster relief was filtered through religion in India and the United States. In the United States, it was very, very organized, and it had to feed through particular established formal organizations had to follow particular rules and procedures. And what happened was uh, a lot of the way in which religion provided relief to Hurricane Katrina was on a very large scale, but it was very delayed. And so we don't see a whole lot uh, in the news about how spirituality was this important component to helping so many people who were at risk in, in New Orleans during the actual hurricane or slightly after but after several weeks, you know, once following like the very organized path of, of working with FEMA and, and, you know, yada, 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 we, we saw massive financial support that started flowing in. In India, you didn't see these formal religious organizations a whole lot, but what you saw was tremendous altruism and cooperation and coordination in this city of Mumbai, which has recently, in the last couple of decades, become... Uh, development of squatters and slums. And so it's this metropolitan area where far more than 2,000 people probably should have died given the flood that happened that, that August of 2005. But what people were doing, they were going around and trying to help one another actively, and, and when they reflected upon that, they were talking about their spirituality. But the long-term support for the victims of that flood was not the, the quantity as you saw in the United States. And so what the paper ended up turning into is just how when we institutionalize and formalize our religion, it maybe consequently or maybe as a consequence makes religion less a part of our daily lives and the way that we think about things. And it becomes this expectation of this is what these organizations do. And that, in, on one hand, it has this benefit of having it be efficient and organized and calculable and predictable. 
which is great. And India, of course, is missing out on, on that part of it. But in India, the immediate disaster, there, there wasn't this discourse about all these poor people deserving to die and, you know, if they just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and all these kinds of things. It was narrative of their moral responsibility to help one another because of their Hinduism or their, you know, belief in Islam or there's some discourse about Christianity as well. But the larger idea was the, the spirituality. They weren't leaving it to be formally organized. It was just a part of what they do. So I found that pretty fascinating. I'm not sure that I've quite fully grasped this, the difference, but let me take a stab at it. You tell me if I'm close. Because they're less institutionalized, there's the general beliefs, which are religious beliefs, but they're widely distributed in India, and it's less a part of which organization you're part of, and it's more about the beliefs that you hold individually that leads to individual motivation. An individual can get up and go, whereas it takes some time for an organization to have its monthly meeting and make its decision and apportion its money and then send forces and support, which it can do to a, a large degree and with large impact. So one case, you're sacrificing immediacy for size and effectiveness of organization. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Wow, that means I understand a sociologist. That's a step up for me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it's. I think it's important to recognize what we lose when we have to have things formally organized according to particular rules because there's a lot of gain. And I think a lot of us agree that the gain is very worth it to have these formal rules that are institutionalized and, and makes for a lot more order in our lives, which feels safer. And in a lot of ways, it is more secure. But we, we do lose that idea of your personal connection to other people. You know, Max Weber, this, this famous sociologist, he used to talk about how this rationality, this, this formal rationality, was going to be this iron cage that's going to pervade modern society and just dehumanize us and disenchant us with what it means to be human, right? And we're going to lose that magic of being human, which the magic is the connections that we have to one another, first and foremost, right? Not our connection to rules, but our connections to one another. And he argued, nothing but a polar night of icy darkness and hardness awaits us now, no matter what groups prevail. <laughs> Which is you know, a very depressing take on modernity, because modernization has all these benefits. But it really is a danger, especially when you're talking about religion, when things have to be too formally organized, right? And I guess that's kind of what I was getting at with that research project, which I didn't intend to originally going into it. But it's what you learned, and so that's what you share. Could you tell me a little bit, Nels, about yourself, religiously, spiritually, history to present? Who is Nels Paulson from that religious, spiritual point of view? The church I grew up in was a ELCA Lutheran church. I ended up going to yeah, ELCA Lutheran College, Concordia College in Warhead, Minnesota, and sort of keep with that religious tradition because I, I largely because I'm used to the rituals and so on and so forth. You know, for me, though, uh, I go to church on Sundays and have developed wonderful relationships with the other people in the church, and I think that that's been more important to me than trying to fit into a particular genre of religion. So I live in Menominee, Wisconsin currently, 
that's where UW Stout is. We actually just moved up here about a year ago. My wife is a physician. She was working in Rochester, Minnesota for four years while I was working here at UW Stout. And we lived in Wabasha, Minnesota, which is right in between the two towns. And we commute in opposite directions for an hour each day. And so I, I commuted up here to Menominee each day for four years with the kids and until I have three small children. And uh, on Sundays, we would go to church in Wabasha, to this small ELCA church, Faith Lutheran Church. And the relationships that we developed there were very meaningful in that the focus for many of the people there, and I'm not sure if that was a reflection of the history of the congregation or the pastor, but the focus is just to be warm and open and inviting. So, like, for example, the, the pastor and his wife are godparents for our youngest. So these connections that we built with them were so meaningful that we actually still commute down there <laughs> every single Sunday. There's dozens of churches here in Menominee, but we commute down to Wabasha every Sunday so that the kids can go to Sunday school with our friends, and uh, we can still maintain that little bit of a connection with them and have like lunch with some of them afterwards. And you know, a lot of the stuff that went into my TED talk actually came from conversations I was having with a friend of mine who's a, a social studies teacher at the high school in Wabasha, who is this amazing human being. He, he actually has brain cancer and continues to, like, every single day, like, coach track and teach and just overcoming incredible odds there. Basically, from what I've been able to see, it's because he spends all his time focusing on other people and, and, and not himself. And our pastor gave this wonderful sermon I don't know, about a month before I gave my TED Talk, or a couple months before I gave my TED Talk, that was dealing with Mark chapter 9 and sort of how the disciples were spending uh, all their time talking about who's the best, and, and Jesus said, you know, what are you guys even talking about? Look at this child, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, this, this fear about losing our status, right, or being wrong, he really had this great message in, in a sermon. And so I found by having discussions with those guys and, and just watching them, the way they deal with their everyday lives has been inspirational for a lot of my research, you know, or at least it reflects a lot of my research interests and solidifies it a little bit more. So I guess that's generally how my religion fits into my work. It's not directly instrumental and it's not dogmatic at all, but it's a way to think through things in a slightly different way perhaps than I would academically, but, you know, equally important. I have a couple questions which maybe are going to take us pretty far from your research, which is often environmentally cued. It's looking at what's going to make a difference to the glory of the earth around us. But since you do have personal experience of religion, I'm just wondering if I can ask you a couple questions about that. Several years ago, I interviewed one of the authors of a book called American Grace, which is essentially a sociological study about what religion's doing, how it unites and divides us in the United States. One of the trends they pointed out, which has continued since the book came out, is something that's radically different for U.S. society, and that is the group of people who are not affiliated with any religion, who are spiritual but not religious, has started to grow. It, it was a steady, small number through most of the history. Unchurched religiosity, yeah. Yeah, and now it's growing dramatically. I'm wondering what implications that has for the kind of work that we do, caring for our environment, caring for one another, as in the case of Katrina or so on. What implications that that would therefore have for our country? You know, on one hand, a lot of people see it as dangerous in terms of uh, we have this 
theoretical contribution from Emil Durkheim uh, about 100 years ago, talking about this shift in how we're interconnected with people, that it's more impersonal kind of way where we have access to a lot more information, but the norms that we have that are shared with other people are, are are weaker, right? And the argument that he makes, he calls this anomie or normlessness, is that without strong norms, we have unrealistic expectations, right? And this can be very, very problematic for social order as well as for our own happiness insofar as, you know, if we have unrealistic expectations, then we're going to be disappointed very frequently, right? And, and there's also this likelihood that we won't be able to trust people as much, we, or we aren't as likely to trust people. We'll get anxious when we actually communicate with one another. I think this fear with a lot of people about this unchurched kind of spirituality is that it's leading us towards this sort of normlessness. And so my general impression is that a lot of this spirituality are avenues for people to actually be more connected to one another rather than disconnected. And so it's not necessarily that type of anomie that some people are afraid is going to happen. If people were becoming more disconnected with one another by pursuing this unchurched kind of religiosity, then I think we have some tremendous things to worry about in terms of the place of religion in providing social order, security, stability, predictability, etc. But my general impression is that's not really where this is going. Just sociologically speaking, it seems like the more dangerous direction is those who are so fearful about that that they are become so entrenched in, in certain dogma and doctrine and interpretations of their own scripture that they have a real hard time being empathetic or compassionate or just considerate of other people's perspectives. That, to me, is, is a little bit more of a danger that I am worried about in terms of the way religion is going, is, is this higher commitment to fundamentalism out of a fear about that unchurched religiosity that I think is generally unfounded in terms of a real risk. So that, that's, I guess, my general impression. It's surprising and perhaps maybe sad that we actually would connect a loss of empathy with an increase in religiosity. That is not what one normally would project from the teachings of many religions. And, and it's sad, sad and true, I'm afraid. It is, yeah. Well, let's get on to the third and the area that actually I heard you speak about at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Phosphorus and farmers is what your study is about, but this is all about the red cedar watershed and water quality and how you actually get effective change, cohesiveness working for a particularly good. So tell me what the research was about, how you implemented it, and what the outcome of this is. The idea behind it was that I didn't know enough about the ecology of the problem or really what were some of the social and economic barriers to trying to address the problem of, of this blue-green algae bloom. It struck me as important to have to start talking to people, of course, about what do we know about the ecology and, and the sociology and economics about this problem before we can start to develop a research project. But uh, also that I really needed to try to understand this not by developing complete expertise in geology or biology or economics, but rather to bring in 
these kinds of expert researchers to do other angles on this project that are different than mine, and we can all learn from one another. So we ended up establishing this LAKES project, which is an acronym for Linking Applied Knowledge and Environmental Sustainability to train undergraduates each summer in, in doing research on this phosphorus pollution, but in ways that reflect what questions not only we have as academics, but what questions the, the watershed had. What it, did it not know? And it turns out the watershed didn't know a whole lot about the social and economic conditions of, of the water pollution. And so this became a, a much bigger part of our project than, you know, a lot of the ecology, which is what ordinarily people would focus on. Okay, we just need to find out a little bit more about the sources of the, of the pollution. And, and it turns out we already know quite a bit about that, right? It's more that a lot of other the, the people who are using the land are not necessarily understanding their impact, or they don't understand the accessibility of, of changing their land use. This is partially because we're so disconnected upstream and downstream from one another today. And that's speaking metaphorically as well as within the Red Cedar Basin. And so what I decided to focus on for my research project, because of what I was basically seeing as I was talking with people, were farmers and their social networks. And so who did they trust for farming advice? And how does this impact them using certain best management techniques like you know, conservation tillage and the cover crops and, and manure storage and containment and so on and so forth. So that is a bit more of my interest, but we've had other projects that have taken a look at, well, what is the natural phosphorus in, in the watershed and, and been able to start to measure that. And Chris Ferguson, who's an economist at UW Stout, he's the co-director of the Lakes Project, he uh, helped direct an economic impact study of the lake this last summer with the lakes project that estimated we're bare minimum about $36 million we're losing out on by not having clean water just for Menominee, right? This ended up being a bigger project than just us finding some publishable data because it turns out the community, was, and, and this was intentional from the starting point, is to in, integrate the community and, and government agencies and, you know, stakeholders on our research, addressing questions that they had, and then reporting the results in a way that's accessible to them, but also encouraging them to talk with one another about the research findings as, as well as, you know, kind of come up with their own solutions as a community from moving forward. And so a lot of the initiatives we had in terms of Dunn County establishing environmental sustainability as the number one goal and establishing a water quality fund and a water quality specialist and us moving forward as a watershed and establishing these farmer-led councils is partially because at the end of each of the last two summers, we've had our students report their research at a local coffee shop in the form of research posters that are essentially encouraging the community, and we've had several hundred people each year show up to learn about the research, but also to talk with one another. And we've seen these conversations blossom into actual initiatives. We've, you know, got this one of the local county level land conservation division conservationists. You know, I think he's been amazed. He's been doing this job for 30 some years, and he's never seen such movement to actually try to fix the water quality in the watershed before, like he's seeing right now. And I think that's partially because we just need to get people talking with one another. The local lake association has been doing similar things. The Tamanoman Lake Improvement Association, they help to establish a Red Cedar Conference every March that gets not only people in Menominee talking with one another, but people in Menominee talking with farmers. You know, we had like 60 farmers attend that research conference or that conference last year and start to envision ways to move forward that is, 
you know, not really all that detrimental to a whole lot of people. It's very low cost once we start talking about it to any individual person in, in trying to move forward to get clean water. And I think that's basically where my initial interest in sociology came from and where my interest in civil society came from is, you know, while the, the research suggests that the more that we connect people with one another, the more that they tend to trust one another and develop their own solutions. And so the more that I can not only identify these kinds of patterns with my research, but also encourage those kinds of patterns with my research, I think the more meaningful my life's going to be as an academic. So... That's the uh, long and short story of the Lakes Project. Well, there's a lot more detail to that, and people can look at the TED Talk on TEDxUWStout.com. I'm going to have links to these, of course, on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, so you can find way to Nels Paulson's website, you can find to the Lakes Project, and much more. Now, you say, though, that the key, I don't know, it's the outgrowth, it's what the research shows, is that getting people to meet and talk to one another is what's important. We have this wonderful thing called social media now, and so we can all be on Facebook and we can all talk to one another. Does that actually happen? I've heard that what it actually leads to is people friend and share and look at the posts of people who are of their same belief and persuasion, and so they don't actually get that cross-cultural dissemination. Yeah, I agree. I, I think qualitatively the, the interactions on social media are quite a bit different than the face-to-face ones. Quantitatively, they're different too. You get a lot more interactions through Facebook with, uh, with people than you'd ever have in everyday life. But the meaningfulness in terms of actually developing that empathy and perspective taking is so different when you're just going through and scrolling to find stuff that you agree with and you, and you click like. And if you see something you disagree with and you post something about, you're an idiot, you know, you're a racist, you're whatever. Maybe defriend somebody. And so you end up getting this highly selective kind of knowledge base that, you know, it's not necessarily that you're always wrong about, like, selecting to not listen to some things, but the default to be that uber-selective is, is, you know, very dangerous for the type of civil society that I I think we really need for a sustainable community. I'm on social media, at least in terms of I have a Facebook account, and it's very nice seeing friends, their kids, and, you know, birthday parties, and announcing that they just had a book come out or, you know, other wonderful things in their lives. But in terms of productive political kind of discourse, I don't see that as much as I would in in a face-to-face kind of interaction. The personalization or this this almost feeling of of anonymity, or sometimes there's literal anonymity when you go online and, and just post stuff, and that kind of opens up the doors for a lack of civility, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that can be dangerous about online correspondence as well. I'm imagining that if there was discussion about this issue of the algae bloom and the phosphorus in the water, which is feeding the algae bloom, you know, I've been environmentally active for 40, 45 years, something like that. And I remember those discussions way back in late 60s, early 70s. What you need to do, of course, is the phosphorus is coming from the fertilizer that they're putting on. And so it's all the farmer's fault. You're involving farmers in this, and so I assume you're not just going and shaking your finger. You're listening empathetically. What does that conversation turn into if it's not identifying that the phosphorus in their fertilizer is causing this? Well, first of all, there's a lot of variation from farm to farm. So there's 
two dangers in, in just going up to on a farmer, hey, you're destroying our water. One is that they'll get defensive and, and say, no, I'm not, and not actively try to change their land use. But the second is presuming that you actually know more about their land than they do. It might be that they have a particular situation where the slope of their land and the proximity of the water and that the land is porous or, you know, whatever isn't really as problematic, right? And that there's some sources that are, are far more problematic than others. And so that when you empower the farmers to not only find out more about their land, but to have discussions about that with other people with expertise, not necessarily me, you know, uh, actually people more like, I don't know, Amanda Hansen or Julia Olmsted or, you know, Paul Kivlin or Dan Prestebach or, you know, there's a lot of conservation experts who aren't really engaging in dialogues with farmers largely because the farmers don't have the clear avenues to actually discuss their land with them. And so that's the beauty about these farmer-led councils, I think, potentially, is that the more that we can make this seem like an empowerment kind of a resource, and the more that it is an empowerment resource and not just a, hey, start doing something different, because listen to me, I'm a sociologist, uh, <laughs> the, the more likely you're going to actually see some rapid change in, in land use. You know, what we kind of see with norms is that they very slowly change over time until they get to sort of a critical point, and then all of a sudden you see that, that sort of a tipping point where the norms are so massively different for everybody around you that, you know, you, you can't help but just follow the new norms. And so I, I think that the types of seeds that are being planted with these farmer-led councils is potentially going to have enormous payoff, you know, in five, ten years, maybe faster. But the challenge, of course, is just to be patient at the beginning to try to allow farmers to take the ownership of it and allow that norm to expand from their networks is sometimes difficult to invest in because it means a lot of face time and less going out in rivers and sampling time. But, you know, in, in the Red Cedar Basin, it definitely seems like we're prioritizing this a lot more than most other places in, in the country and certainly more than perhaps historically has been the case in this watershed. As you know, Nels, a very important part of spirit in action and what I'm trying to accomplish with this program, what we and board of directors and all the people associated with this are trying to do is to effectuate change. What has changed because of the work of the Lakes Project from UW-Stout? Have people been changed specifically, institutions? Is there a change in water quality? Is there anything that you can point to that says this has actually done something? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard for, for me uh, to take credit for a lot of things in terms of my work or to say that the Lakes Project is entirely the reason why we've seen changes, but I think that our work has been important and, and central to uh, seeing a, a more of a commitment not only towards environmental sustainability in the region, but more of a commitment to working together with other stakeholders in meaningful ways in this region that I certainly didn't see here six years ago when I first arrived in terms of dealing with this phosphorus pollution. And I think anybody who you'll talk to who has been trying to address this pollution problem in, in this watershed for the last 50 years would tell you the same thing, that you've seen some pretty massive changes in terms of starting to work with land users around the watershed you know, even places like Colfax, they're, they're working on remediating like this massive soil erosion site, the local lake association, the land water conservation division, the DNR, the Army Corps of Engineers that has been sitting there for years as a, as a huge problematic erosion site. 
you know, you really didn't see that moving forward until I think people started connecting up with one another and really started thinking through how to solve these problems collaboratively rather than just telling one another what they need to do. And I think the Lakes Project has been a big part of that and contributed a lot to that mentality. And it's it's been a paradigm shift. Currently, even the DNR, there, there's been a massive defunding of DNR this last year, especially for the science that they do. And in the face of that, in spite of that, there's still massive discussions in the DNR led by you know, Buzz Sorge, who's a, sort of the regional director for the DNR, to try to integrate more of these sociology kind of principles and practices and research into what they do, which you know, is really hard to do in the face of budget cuts, but people are really excited and committed to this kind of paradigm shift. And I think you know, Buzz has suggested several times that the Lakes Project has been a big impetus behind this paradigm shift in, in the way that DNR is thinking about what they're doing. So my hope is, is that that kind of feedback is accurate. <laughs> I, I don't want to um, too arrogantly say that, you know, how much of an impact our work has had, but I think it's been pretty significant. Well, your advantage is that you can now design research to measure what the impact has been. And we'll wait for that. And I'll look forward to seeing that when it does come out. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Nels Paulson. He is in the Social Science Department at University of Wisconsin-Stout over in Menominee, Wisconsin. I saw him speak at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire with the sociology class and for the public about old ideas, new knowledge, and sustainable communities. The other research that we've heard about in Nels has also been very interesting to me personally because I love to see what motivates change and what gets it done. So you're actually looking at that from a place, the Ivy Tower, that's much closer to the ground than I'm used to thinking of. So I appreciate so much that research for you working for the beauty of this country, our environmental well-being, and for changing our students. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Find links to Nels Paulson, including his University of Wisconsin Stout TED Talk, via the links on northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.